Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you open your Bibles to um, Luke chapter 1 this morning? Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that this is um, the Christmas season. We love celebrating it. We love the songs. We love the smells in the air with the pine trees. Moreover, we love celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. It's something we look forward to many months before it happens. And now it's here. And we pray that we would not only enjoy it, but be instructed in it and about it. And with that instruction, we would be drawn into deeper, more authentic relationship with the one that we worship during this season. We pray, Lord, that you, through Christ, would leave an imprint on our lives that would last throughout the entire year. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was looking at a headline the other day about Christmas, and the headline was called 2010's War on Christmas. And the article began by saying the battle lines are already drawn between the group of people that want to say Happy Holidays and the group that wants to say Merry Christmas. And there seems to be a lot of fight over it. The people that want happy holidays and not Merry Christmas will tell you it's because they believe that celebrating Christmas publicly is our way of pushing Christianity on them. And so you'll have every year where celebrations will be the celebration without Christ. For instance, this year in Philadelphia, the city celebration that has always and traditionally been called Christmas Village, downtown Philadelphia, has changed its name to Holiday Village. And um, they got so, so much flack from it, so much media attention, that just the other day they changed it back from Holiday Village to Christmas Village. There's a school down in Florida, Sarasota, Florida, that banished Christmas altogether from celebration. No songs, no trees, not even the colors green and red. So it seems that we are expected to bow before the altar of political correctness and not even mention Jesus on his own birthday, which sounds ludicrous. So if you own a public market or a business... You have to be very creative in how you say Merry Christmas. And I took a picture of one that I thought you'd enjoy. This is a storefront uh, in Newport Beach, California, that says, and we'll blow it up, look at, we hope not to offend, but Merry Christmas. I kind of like that. Trying to cover their bases, but still bring Christmas into it. Listen to what one graduation class did that I thought was remarkable. It wasn't on Christmas time, but they had to be creative because the school board 
told the 93 students graduating that there would be no prayer this year at the commencement ceremonies. A recent court ruling had prohibited that. No prayer, no mention of God in your speeches. Students understood and said they would comply. So it was graduation day. The 93 students marched in in their caps and gowns, full regalia. Speeches were given. Um, Issues were raised. People were challenged. But it was pretty much same old, same old, until one student came up to give his speech. Well, not really a speech. He went up to the microphone, stood in front of it silently, and then let out one loud, astounding sneeze. It was all on cue. At that point, the 92 other students rose to their feet and shouted out, God bless you! And the audience did what you just did. They broke out in thunderous applause at a group of innovative teenagers who figured out how to invoke God's blessing on their future, no matter what the court says. Well, 2,000 years ago, in a little Jewish town of Nazareth, things were not so politically correct as they are now. It was not only legal to invoke God's name publicly, and to ask God's blessing publicly was expected. That was protocol. What wasn't expected, what wasn't allowed, and what wasn't acceptable was to be a young girl, a teenager, who ends up pregnant before she's married. And now we enter into Mary of Nazareth's predicament. That's what I want to talk to you about today, and that is Mary. The name of this message is Mary's Excellent Adventure. It's a play on words, really. This is the Advent season, we call it. Advent means the coming or the arrival of Christ. And weeks up before Christmas, the church has traditionally celebrated Advent season. Well, this is Mary's Adventure. She is at the very center of the Advent story. Now, let let me set the scene a little bit before we jump in. We have a lot of verses we want to look at, beginning in verse 26 all the way down to verse 55. For 400 years, God had been silent. There's a 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God had not spoken. There have been no prophetic messages, no miraculous occurrences, no angelic visits until now. Now everything changes. Now 400 years past the last big event in the Old Testament comes an angel from heaven. Not just an angel. You should know the angel, the heavyweight angel, Gabriel himself, to an obscure town in northern Galilee called Nazareth, a backwater town, to a young woman named Mary. and gives her some news that blows her mind and changes her life forever. It really rattles her cage so much that she goes to visit her older cousin down in Judea named Elizabeth to get all of this settled and confirmed. And while at her house down in Judea, Mary brings forth, beginning in verse 46, one of the most beautiful prayers ever. She becomes a model believer. What I want to look at with you this morning is Mary, her history, first of all, her humility, second, her spirituality, 
And then what she said she needed, her necessity. Let's begin with who she was. Unfortunately, we, we don't know a lot about Mary. I wish we knew more, but we have to piece a few things together. I want to help you do that. Verse 26 of Luke chapter 1 begins, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Mary was a young, poor teenager. Conservative estimates tag her age at somewhere between 13 and 17 years of age. A very young woman. She's from Nazareth. She was poor. Nazareth was a working village, a blue-collar village. But she was very spiritual, very young, but very spiritual. Now, every now and then, I get the rare privilege of meeting a young, mature, advanced, spiritually teenager, young person. Whenever I meet somebody who's young and on fire for God like that, it does something to me. It compels me. I want to get involved in their life and and help fuel them and help direct them. Because I think back when I was 18 years old and somebody had the courage, I should say, to see some spiritual potential in me and wanted to channel that. So I know the power of that kind of mentoring. Mary was young, but spiritual, on fire. Remember, Paul said to Timothy, let no one despise your youth or let no one look down on you just because you're young. We often forget that Jesus largely led a youth movement. The disciples were not as the holy cards and pictures would have you believe, hunched over old men with gray beards. These were young fishermen with a lease on life, and their lives changed because they met Jesus. We also know about Mary that she was from the tribe of Judah, she was of the lineage of David. And if we take Luke's genealogy of Christ and apply that to Mary, making Matthew Joseph's genealogy, then we know the name of Mary's dad. His name was Heli, H-E-L-I. We don't know anything about him except his name. We also know that Mary had a sister. Now, to find that out, we have to turn to the Gospel of John. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. But apparently Mary had a sister, not not only one. She could have had many sisters and brothers, but we only know of one that is written. This is now John chapter 19, verse 25. There stood next to the cross of Jesus his mother, that's Mary, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. So apparently Mary had a sister named Mary, which sounds weird to us, but it's not terribly uncommon in those days. Miriam was the most common Jewish name for girls, and you could carry a couple of them per family. We also know that Mary was related to the priesthood because her older cousin Elizabeth is married to a guy named Zacharias who was one of the priests that served in the temple at Jerusalem. But what is probably more important than any of those facts is that she was engaged. She had a fiancé named Joseph, verse 27, a man whose name was Joseph. Now, if we know little about Mary, we know even less about Joseph. In fact, we only have one word in the entire New Testament that gives us a description of what he was or who he was. And it's the word carpenter. 
Jesus is referred to as the carpenter's son twice. Matthew and Mark recall that. Now that's probably not a great translation. The Greek word tekton simply means a craftsman and typically referred to those who were stonemasons. I know that blows your whole Christmas scene in your head of Joseph the stonemason rather than the carpenter with wood. But you just got to go back and realize that when they built homes in those days, they didn't build with wood. They built with what? Stone, bricks. So if you were a tecton, a craftsperson, and you were to build a house, you'd have to be a bricklayer, put the stone up, as well as work with wood to frame windows, doors, make furniture. And so Joseph probably worked with those and both of those things. Young, hardworking, both poor, living in Nazareth. What is important to notice in verse 27 is a single word, betrothed. She was betrothed. That's not a word we use much anymore. A better word would be engaged, but what does it mean to be betrothed? Does it mean that Mary wore Joseph's ring on a chain around her neck? She wore his letterman's jacket around town? No, it it meant actually a formal type of an engagement. So formal that the only way to break that engagement was a legal divorce. Here's the background. Yeah, a Jewish wedding had two phases. Number one called the Kiddusha, which was the formal engagement, the betrothal. Second was the Chupa, which was the wedding ceremony itself. Here's how it worked. Parents would make a deal with each other. My son, your daughter, sign the agreement, have a cup of coffee. They do in these days anyway. Then a 12-month betrothal period ensued. 12 months to prove her virginity, 12 months to prove his and her fidelity to each other. They would be examined by the community. If she turns up pregnant within that year, you know, they know, we all know, they can't keep their promise. Incidentally, during the engagement, the betrothal, they had no physical relationship whatsoever and little social contact whatsoever. It was simply a period of waiting and preparation. And then came the wedding. That was the chuppah. And the chuppah was where you bring the neighborhood over. Dads, you think it's bad today to fund a wedding for your daughter? Back then, imagine having the whole neighborhood over for a week and you had to pay for it. That's what the wedding of Canaan was all about. Go down to verse 28. And having come in... The angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled. Better word, agitated. Maybe a better term, freaked out. Well, you would be too if an angel showed up at your house. And considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus. God is salvation. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? 
It's a fair question. I've never had any intimate relation with any boy, any man. How is it even possible that this could take place? You say, I'm pregnant. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Wow, what an incredible announcement for a young teenage gal from Hayseed, Nazareth, to get. She is going to be the mother of the Messiah. So here she is. She gets this announcement. She's pregnant, and she knows why. But poor Joseph, he didn't know why. And when Joseph found out, you got to know, Joseph was absolutely flabbergasted, shocked, beside himself, at a whole different level of being freaked out for different reasons. Matthew 1 says that he, he, he was mindful to put her away or divorce her privately. And the w- reason he was shocked is because Joseph knew her, her standard, her righteousness, her purity. He knew the kind of girl that she was, and he knew Deuteronomy 22 well enough to know the punishment for such activity, being pregnant before marriage, is what? Stoning. So she was in quite a spot. Mary had no way to protect her reputation. You ever think about that? Ever try to think of what it was like to be Mary? Walk out of the house with that news. You're pregnant. You're going to have a baby. It's going to be really cool, but you're not married yet. And imagine trying to tell, how is she going to protect her reputation? She has no way on earth. She's going to go tell people, okay, I know this looks bad, but you got to know that I'm pregnant by God. How's that going to go over in town? They're going to go, yeah, right. We've heard lots of excuses, Mary, but that takes the cake. Verse 39. Now Mary arose in those days. Now watch this. This is interesting. And went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. It's interesting to me that she, with haste, it means she hurried, she hightailed it down to Elizabeth's and Zechariah's house. Why do you suppose she was in such a hurry? She needed to talk to Elizabeth. Think about it. Who else would understand a 13-year-old girl being pregnant by God? Who would understand that? Only a woman who had been barren and couldn't conceive and miraculously has a conception miracle of her own with her up-and-coming baby, John the Baptist. Who else is there who would understand a girl who said that the angel Gabriel visited me? Only one who had the angel Gabriel visit her and her husband and say they too were going to have a baby. What person is there who's going to understand... I'm going to be the mom of the Messiah. Well, there's only one lady on earth who could get that one, and that is the one who was told she's going to be the mother of the forerunner of the Messiah. And if the forerunner is in the womb, the Messiah can't be far behind. So it was imperative that they get together. It was important for Mary, because Mary's between 13 and 17, never knew a man. Now she's pregnant, all sorts of emotions swirling around in her head, 
She needs those emotions assuaged, settled. She needs this confirmed. And so she visits Elizabeth down in Judea. So that's her history. We know not much, but we know enough to kind of get a composite view of who she was. Let's look at something else about Mary. Her humility. Now, I skipped over verse 38 on purpose so we could get to it now. After the angel says, look, this is what's going to happen. Nothing's impossible with God. Listen to what Mary says to the angel. Behold, the maid servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Isn't that amazing? She submits herself completely in humility to the will of God, to the word of God for her life. She says, okay, I'm up for this. Be it done to me according to your word. Now, women, how many ladies do you know, if they got this kind of an announcement, would say that? Okay, you're pregnant. I know you can't figure this out. I know this is impossible, but you're pregnant and your belly is going to grow so you know you're pregnant. And that means, if you think about it, the rest of your life you're going to have to live with that stigma. And she did. Even Jesus, they called him born of fornication, if you remember. How many ladies would say, okay, great, whatever, I surrender, I humbly surrender. Most ladies, if they were married, would say, "Uh, Joseph, I had this weird dream. And it was really weird. I think I need to see a counselor and talk this over. She doesn't do that. She just has resigned in her heart in faith and in humility. Whatever God wants is what I want. Every Jewish girl had thoughts as she grew up of becoming the mother of the Messiah. It was the hope of every Jewish girl approaching the age of betrothal and marriage. I know the Messiah is coming and God's going to choose some Jewish woman woman, to be the mother. Maybe I'll be the one. So the day comes where Gabriel goes, guess what, Mary? You're the one. Out of all the Jewish gals in history, out of all the women on the earth, you have been singled out to bring forth the Son of God. And what would that do to your head as a young teenage girl? It could get pretty big, couldn't it? It could swell up several sizes. You could have a lot of pride over that one. Well, I must be something special. Because, you know, there's lots of gals out there, but I'm the one God picked. It would be very easy to get into that. It didn't happen. She surrenders herself to it. And then she comes to grips with it. And verse 46 down to verse 55 is the beautiful prayer of Mary, which we'll look at more in detail in just a moment. But I want to take you to a couple of verses. Mary said, verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For He has regarded the lowly state of His maidservant. That's what Mary says about herself. I'm a nobody from nowhere, and God has singled me out. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. All generations will call me blessed. So here she goes. Again, I'm a nobody. I'm from nowhere. But from now on, everybody's going to look down through history and say, that's the girl that God blessed and singled out to be the mother of the Messiah. It's beautiful. 
Verse 52, again, I'm skipping ahead. She prays, He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. So Mary's own description, I'm lowly. I have a lowly state. It's one of humility. Mary hits an important note in verse 52. It's a principle found throughout the Bible. That is that God exalts the lowly and puts down the prideful or the mighty. God just has a way of doing that. If you think you're something great and something special, God has a unique way of putting you down and humbling you very quickly. If you are lowly before God and submissive, God has a way of raising you up. He did it with Jesus, right? I mean, that's the whole point of Paul in Philippians when he says, Jesus, who is the exact nature of God, he was God. He didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation, humbled himself and became a servant. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He humbled himself. The Father exalted him. Mary humbled herself, and she realizes in that lowly state, God is giving me this blessing. It's beautiful. That's her humility. Let's look at her spirituality. I think Mary is a model believer. She's really an astonishing gal. She hears God's word. She believes it. And now she sings a song of praise, beginning, as I said, in verse 46 down to verse 55. This is called the Magnificat. Some of you may already know that. That's the church term for it, the Magnificat. That's a Latin word that is the translation of the third word of her prayer in verse 46, magnifies. And the Latin, I think, is Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. It is her song of praise. It is her Advent song, or if you will, it is her great adventure song. As she comes to grips with what she is called to do, she lifts up her voice in spontaneous praise and prayer and says these verses. Now, this is an amazing prayer. And if you really want to get to know somebody, listen to them prayer, to them pray. You learn a lot about what they believe, about themselves, about God, the kind of relationship they have, just by listening to them pray. I remember when I first dated my wife, Lenya, on one particular occasion, I'd been dating her off and on. And then one night we went to dinner at this steakhouse in Southern California, and uh, we prayed afterwards. I prayed. I thought it was a pretty cool prayer. And then I listened to her pray. And the depth of relationship that I heard in that prayer with the Lord, I walked away more attracted to her than ever. I remember going, wow. In fact, I said it backwards. Wow. (laughs) I was really impressed. This gal knows the Lord. And I wanted to know her. Well, as we get to know Mary, we, we see two things. We see her personal relationship with the Lord by just a few of the things that she says. Go down to verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Now, this is what Mary thinks about God. He is mighty. He is holy. He who is mighty. See, a lot of our problem is we don't really know God is mighty. We would say, well, for he who is well-intentioned but incapable, 
Here's something I've discovered. The bigger the concept you have of God, the smaller your problems are in front of the mighty God. The bigger your problems are in your life, it's because your view of God happens to be very, very small. Here's a a girl who's just been told, this has never happened before, Mary, but you're pregnant. The Holy Spirit did it. And uh, you're going to have a baby in your womb. That's impossible. The angel said, with God, all things are possible. She goes, okay, I'm into that. I believe that. I submit to that. And now she utters what she believes about God. He is mighty and probably mightier that week than the previous weeks in her life. Remember when you were a kid and um, if you had a, a normal upbringing, a mom or a dad, especially a dad, there was a period in your life when he was Superman. He could do anything. I remember at least my dad, I thought, my dad is like better than all of their dads. And my dad can do anything. And then you come to a stage in your life where you realize your dad can't do everything. And that's just called growing up. The more you grow up, the more you realize dad is like anybody else, makes mistakes, has good points about him. Mom makes mistakes, has good points about her. That's called growth. Well, here's what happens when you grow as a Christian. You realize your heavenly father can do everything and more so than what you believed before. So she always believed, but now she's experiencing this and meeting with Elizabeth. And she says, God is mighty and he is holy. Shows her relationship with her God. Not only does it show her relationship with God, it shows her regard for the scripture. Now, now get this. This is to me the greatest part of this prayer. It blows my mind. There are no less than 15 quotations of Old Testament passages in this little prayer. Or references to them. Echoes of them. A part of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 are echoed in Mary's prayer. Maybe Mary was pouring over that passage. But there's a lot of others, like the quotes from the law, the Psalms, the writings of the prophets, all laced in the fabric of her prayer to God. Here's a couple of samplings. Look at verse 46. Look at the phrase, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now listen to Psalm 34, verse 2. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. She was echoing that. Verse 47, she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. That's an echo of Isaiah 45. There is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior. Look at verse 48. For he has regarded the low estate or state of his maidservant. That sounds a lot like what Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. She said, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me. And again, verse 48, for behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. Now that sounds a lot like what Leah prayed in Genesis 30. She was one of the wives of Jacob. She finally got pregnant and she said, happy am I for the daughters will now call me blessed. Echoes of all of those Old Testament scriptures. There's another one, verse 49. He who is mighty has done great things for me. It's an echo of Psalm 126, verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. Verse 49, and holy is his name, is a direct quote from Psalm 111, verse 9. It says, and holy 
and awesome is his name. Okay, uh, why am I belaboring this? Because this is what I want you to get. This blows my mind. We're dealing with a teenager. She's 13 to 17 years of age. And it's not like she has a concordance to look up all these verses before she prays. This is flowing out of her heart spontaneously. What an example of a young woman who had been taught the word of God by her parents so that it became a part of her fabric. Charles Spurgeon says we could do the same. We could so internalize the word of God, he says, so that your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord and so that your blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from you. So don't you think that's amazing? A young girl from Nazareth from the age of 13 to 17 knows that much scripture. Not only that, she knows a lot about her own history, the history of Israel. Here's a sampling of it. Verse... uh, 50. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones, exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. She not only knows scripture, she knows her history. She knows about the Abrahamic covenant. She knows the eternal nature of that covenant. My goodness, this teenager knows theology. This young teenager knows more than many pastors I've met. It's part of her life. Question. If you bump into a bucket, what comes out of the bucket? Whatever's inside. That's the easy answer. If there's nothing, nothing comes out. If there's water, water comes out. If it's soapy water, it gets all over you. Whatever is in it comes out. When people bump into you, what comes out? Same answer. Whatever's inside. Jesus put it this way. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in Mary's heart? This. God's truth, God's principles, God's word the history of her own people, the knowledge of God. When people bump into you, what comes out? That's in there. It came out. No wonder Paul said in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. People bump into you, that's what comes out. Let's close this off and look at a couple verses. Let's end with this, her necessity. We've seen her history, her humility, her spirituality. But Mary says something about her condition and expresses her own need. And I think it's very timely and important to look at. Verse 47. I got to take it in context. I'm just like that. Verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God. My what? Savior. Who needs saviors? Only sinners need saviors. Mary, by her own admission, in saying God is my savior, admits her need for salvation, and in so doing, admits that she is a sinner in need of salvation. Now follow that up with the next verse, verse 48. He has regarded the lowly state, that's who she is, the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. Notice that. 
doesn't say all generations will ask me to give them a blessing, but all generations will recognize that I have received the blessing. All generations will call me blessed. Mary is never the dispenser of blessing, always the recipient of blessing. In verse 49, the Lord has done great things for me. And then she says, and holy is his name. Here is holy, righteous, transcendent, separate God who has condescended to me. To bless me, to love me, to show me favor. And in contrast to her sinfulness, she recognized God's holiness. And so must we all. So must we all. Max Lucado put it best when he said, you don't impress the officials at NASA with your paper airplane. You don't boast about your crayon sketches in the presence of Pablo Picasso. Hey, look at Pablo, look what I drew. You don't claim equality with Albert Einstein because you can write H2O. And you don't boast about your goodness in the presence of the perfect one. Mary, in the presence of the perfect one, said... Whatever you want, you're the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. I have a lowly state. I've received your mercy. The Lord has blessed me and done great things for me. So all of this to say, never in the New Testament was Mary considered an object of worship. But she was the subject who worshipped the great God. You remember that passage in Luke chapter 11, when a crowd of people are around Jesus and one woman yells out from the crowd. She says, blessed is the woman who gave you birth and nursed you. You know what Jesus said immediately? He turned to her and said, yea, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So Jesus never told the world to worship his mother. Mary never became an object of adoration. She never allowed that. The disciples, the apostles, the book of Acts, the epistles of Paul, none of that ascribe anything to Mary. She's not to be prayed to. She didn't have an immaculate conception. She's not the co-redemptress of the human race. All of that is not found in the scripture. And all of those things misrepresent Mary, who would be appalled if she knew that people were worshiping her. Listen, you want to honor Mary? then you honor her God that she loved by worshiping Him. You want to honor Mary, then you honor the Christ that she bore by receiving Him into your life as your Savior, who was also her Savior. That's how you honor Mary. She was blessed beyond all women on the face of the earth. And if you want to honor her, you worship not her, you pray not to her, you worship God, and you receive Christ There's a famous song that was put out by Mark Lowry some years ago. It comes every Christmas called Mary Did You Know. Ever heard that song, Mary Did You Know? Great lyrics. There's just a sampling of a few. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Mary, did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? And that this child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know? Did she? Oh, you bet she knew. The question is, do you know? 
She knew it. She was humble. She was spiritual. But she had a need of a Savior. And if that's true for Mary, I guarantee it's true for every one of us. We also need a Savior. His mercy, His grace. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for the incredible example of this young, godly teenager that stands out from all others is to us. What an example of maturity and depth, of faith, of submission to Your Word and Your will, of love for You, of a theology of Your greatness, Your majesty, Your kindness, Your grace, Your plan throughout history, the covenants given to Abraham and the rest. What a great example she becomes to us. To those of us who are much older than 13 or 17. But I pray, Lord, like Mary... That as she discovered nothing is impossible with God, we discover that nothing is impossible with God still to this day. And that Jesus is still in the business of changing lives and wants to save from sin and make all things new. I pray for those, Lord, who are sitting here this morning, specifically for those who are kind, noble, well-intentioned, Societally, they're good, some very, very religious, but some who at the same time have never personally received Christ as the Savior and as the Lord, the Master of their own lives. Some have gone to church and come to church, but have never come to the saving knowledge of Christ, to saving faith. Some remember making a pledge, maybe when they were a teenager, or had some experience at a camp or at a church service, but today they're not walking with Christ and they need to come back home to you. As our heads are bowed, as we're praying and we're coming to a close of our service, if either of those two describe you, either you've never received Christ or you grew up in a spiritual environment but you're not walking with Jesus today and you need to come back to Him, If you want to make Jesus this morning the Lord of your life, the Savior of your life, you want to come to Him or come back to Him, then I want you to raise your hand as our heads are bowed. You raise your hand because I'd like to pray for you, but I need to know who I'm praying for. Just keep your hand up in the air. Raise it up for just a second. God bless you, ma'am. Right up here toward the front. Anyone else? Raise it up so I can see it. To my right on the side and right up front on the side to my right. Over here to the left, toward the front, in the back, way in the back, right in the middle. Right back there, way in the back there. I see your hand. Anybody else? Raise your hand up. Lord bless you. In the family room, right on. God bless you. Thank you, Father, for these. So precious to you. Give them the strength, Father. Help them. We pray for them. Their lives would be changed forever. And that they would walk in fellowship and in faith with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand up to your feet, would you?
As we close in this song, I'm going to ask if you raise your hand, whether you're in the family room or toward the front or on the side or in the back, I want to give you an opportunity to put legs on your commitment and to find the nearest aisle and walk up front and let, allow me to lead you in a word of prayer to receive Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus so often called people publicly and said, okay, make a clean break from the past. Everything gets new today. So as we sing this song, we'll wait for you. If you raise your hand, even if you were just about to, but you didn't have the time, you come on up to the front and allow me to lead you in a prayer. I want to give you an opportunity. This is the most important thing ever in your life. Those of you who have come forward, and there's a bunch of you, and we're so glad you did. I don't know your story, but God knows your story. And God wants to transform you life like he did with so many of ours. But it begins with simply asking God to come in, asking Jesus to come into your life. It's, it's you asking him to take over. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I'd like you to pray this prayer out loud after me from your heart. It's you giving the Lord control over your life. Let's pray. Lord, I give you my life. I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. That he shed his blood for my sin. And that he rose from the dead. I turn from my sin. And I turn to you as Savior. And as Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah! Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.